Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Monique Trump. Professor Trump holds the Chair in Materials Chemistry and is Director of the Zernike Institute for Advanced Materials at the University of Groningen. She also has considerable experience in interacting with policymakers, having been the chair until recently of both the Young Academy of Europe and of YASAS, that's the Young Academy Science Advice Structure, a new-ish organisation created to give early and mid-career researchers a more direct role in the work of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. She's now active as a captain of science of the top sector chemistry of the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate, which is an advisory role to ministers in her home country of the Netherlands. And she is still involved in the European science policy landscape via COARA, the Coalition for the Advancement of Research Assessment, where she is co-chairing the Working Group on the Advancement of Research Careers. So, Monique, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Toby. Nice to be here. Now, I have to start with this. I have had a baron on this podcast and I've had a knight, but I think this is the first time I've had a captain of science. What on earth is going on? Uh, To be honest, I have no idea where the name captain comes from. I've been asking this question at several places, also in the ministry. So there is a top team which advises the the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate. And within the top team, there are three people. One is uh, representing industry. She is called the figurehead. And then there's a representative from the small and medium-sized businesses, and he has no special name as far as I know. And for the academic representative, they they devised this captain of science name. It sounds very nice, <laughs> uh, but apparently it's just to distinguish between figurehead and this position, but no one really knows where the captain comes from. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it sounds just as weird in Dutch as English. Right? Yeah, it's not a yeah no, thing. definitely. Yeah, it like it's, it sounds a bit like a pirate on a ship or something. But uh, yeah, 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 right. Or like a superhero, captain <laughs> of science, like Captain America. Do you get a cape? No, not besides my toga, but yeah. No. <laughs> okay, well, the toga will have to do. But anyway, it's a science advisory role. Yeah, definitely. And then, especially in the field of green chemistry and circularity, that is this top sector. So they've defined different areas. Of course, I can't advise on uh, social sciences. So it's, it's the exact sciences side where I'm advising. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about YASAS, this quite fun acronym I mentioned in your introduction. So this is an organization which exists to help get early career researchers into science advice, specifically at European level. Could you say a bit more about that, where it comes from? Well, I was already part of the Young Academy Europe board. And as Young Academy Europe, we were part of this science advice mechanism via our uh, partnership with Academia Europea. So Academia Europea is a partner in science advice mechanism. And we were often asked to provide early mid-career researchers in the mechanism as an advisor in some of the working groups. But we felt that in this large amount of senior fellows, which all these academy networks have, this contribution of one or two early and mid-career researchers is very small. And so we discussed about how we could enlarge the portion of early and mid-career research in the whole science advice mechanism. And we have already Young Academy meetings where we meet each other nationally, we share experience, and from that we we discussed that it might be good to set up an, a, a group, a more formal organization to be an equal partner in the science advice mechanism. And that then became Young Academy Science Advice Structure, where 
we currently have 16 members, uh, but not all National Young Academies. So there's still discussion with some who are not part of this, but just to be an equal network academy within the Sabea structure. Okay, and that's 16 young academies, not 16 individual... No, 16 young academies. So, And and they differ in size. I mean, some of the senior academies have thousands of members. The young academies typically don't. So we really have to have as many young academies joining to provide some contrast to the large numbers of senior fellows. Uh, But I think we have access to a few hundreds of uh, young, early and mid-career researchers now. Mm -hmm. And if I can hesitantly asked this question what counts as young yeah so that's a good question i mean we we devised a, a definition based on all kinds of rules and regulations from for example ERCs but also how we choose our membership um we do say well someone has to have shown uh independence as a researcher so directly after a phd you're you're typically do the research with your supervisor so if you've shown some independence and are excellent whatever that means uh, then you can become a member of the young academy so that is where we start but it kind of finishes up to about maybe even 20 years after PhD, because that's the yeah the transition, the career advancements young people go through before they get to a permanent position. And of course, some people are much faster, some people are even longer, but we try to find this, yeah. So typically we see that the members are somewhere between six, seven years after a PhD and 20 years. That's kind of the pool we are accessing. Yeah, well, I like any definition of young under which I still count as young, just. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. nice. But looking at it another way, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it tells us a little about the senior academies that you can still count as early career until you're 20 years after your PhD. So that's what, like mid-40s in most cases. That says a lot about what counts as a senior academic. Yeah, and you see in a lot of the senior academies that people are much more senior. Let's try to phrase yeah. it politically. <laughs> yeah. So then 20 years, you're considered too young. But we we do this to, to, to reflect where, yeah, this career trajectory a lot of people have to go through. And that might take a bit longer, especially if you have care responsibilities, depending on which country you live in, if you're male, female, and all these kind of things play a role. So we want to be as open as inclusive. And that's the whole point, of course, of including YASAs and early and mid-career researchers. It's not about this one early or mid-career researchers, but it's, it's representing the diversity in the career and in the mechanism. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, let's pause there for a moment or two, because I think it's useful to kind of set out why this is worth doing. So at first blush, when you say it's an attempt to get more early and mid-career researchers into uh, science for policy, great. Why? Just to improve age diversity, or is it broader than that? Yeah, uh, but but of course, much broader diversity. I mean, there's a lot of research that if you increase the diversity in teams, in companies, but also in academia, that the performance and the output becomes better uh, and, and the working environment often becomes nicer as well. Um, and that, of course, then also holds for, for science advice. If you have diversity in the people providing the science advice, the science advice will become better. There are a lot of the, and we especially had this in the beginning, a lot of people in the senior academy saying, well, we base our evidence on science and science is clear, so it doesn't really matter. But we also provide advice and the way you select and phrase it is dependent on who is in 
a working group or a panel or a committee. Uh, so you just need diversity in all these different areas, age, not per se age, but more where you are in your career, let's say, uh, but also which country you come from, which political, cultural system you come from and how science is regarded there. All of these things play a role. Yeah, I mean, this makes sense. I think I, I would hope among the listeners to this podcast, you won't find many people who would say kind of simplistically that it doesn't really matter who gives the advice because all you're doing is regurgitating scientific facts. I mean, I agree that's obviously a bit silly. Apart from anything else, it's not just an argument against diversity. It's also an argument against the intelligent design of science advice institutions, for instance. I mean, there's obviously judgment involved. It's a human process giving science advice. If it was just a case of passing on objective facts, then we wouldn't have a whole discipline of evidence-informed policy and, and how to give it and so on. We could just have policymakers go off and read a book. Yeah, and maybe have JetDDP make a summary and then you have a report, then we don't yeah. need... The, but yeah, what you say, of course. I mean, it, it's a people... People are involved in all the different parts. So you make assessments and, and judgments on all the different steps. And there you need diversity in how to do that and how to which paper to include, which evidence to include, how to read the evidence, because, of course, a role is also how to interpret the evidence to the specific question which was asked. So that's all steps where this human intervention is still needed. And there you need diversity of people to do that in different ways. OK, well, but it's OK. So but one step at a time. So I think recognizing that science advice is a human process for all the reasons we've said, sure. But then the next part of your argument is that adding diversity into that process makes it better. And we can talk about that too. So you mentioned, and I've also seen research suggesting that diversity, for instance, in a working team improves the function of that team, makes it a nicer place to work, produces better results for a given definition of better results. And I can well imagine, although it would be interesting to know the research here too, that those improvements you also see them in the context of science for policy work. But I wonder if there's a limit to how far we want to go with that. I mean, depending a bit, I guess, on what your definition of a better result is. In science advice, we talk a lot about wanting, quote unquote, the best experts, which might mean the people with the most knowledge of their field or the most experience, the most wisdom in advising policymakers. And it's not crazy to suggest that someone with 20 years experience or 40 or 50, I don't know how old people are, might have more of those desirable characteristics than someone with five years experience, which is not to reject the value of including a more diverse range of ages, but we might need to accept that we're, as it were, trading off more experience and expertise in favour of more age diversity. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I mean, all the, the different steps in the science advice is again done in teams, in groups. So you have to ensure that all those teams have the right combination of qualities and I think younger people think maybe outside the box a bit more they come from different angles of course the ones we select which are in the young academies are the ones which at some shape or form we consider as excellent scientists and but they bring in different experiences and what I think is also an important one especially in the European Commission context we decide about future policies so it's it's about our future and there's more future for the young people, so they might feel slightly different. I mean, that's an angle I think is important too. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So that's basically the same argument that's made about lowering the voting age, for example, that younger people will have to basically live with the outcome for longer, so they have a bigger stake in the decision than people who won't be around as long. 
Yeah, yeah. And what I see around me also in a student population, etc. students don't just do a degree because they want to do that specific degree and be the best or earn money. They want to contribute to society, to all the the dilemmas we have at the moment, which is different, I think, from 20, 30 years ago. So I, I think the whole culture changes and you bring that in by bringing in the different people. And you also mentioned a couple of minutes ago, or maybe you, you implied it, let's see if I read it correctly, that it's not just about improving age diversity. We also want other dimensions of the diversity and in, that including early career researchers in your science advice processes or wherever gets you some of those other dimensions too, as it were, for free? Well, I'm not sure if it comes for free. I mean, that's all, always the thing with including young, then the young have to represent all these other diversities as well, like we do with men, women, and then women have to also bring in other things like social safety. So I think that's a bit dangerous to say, but it is true there may be, especially in the academies, there is more attention now, especially in the young academies for diversity in terms of uh, different countries, different cultural backgrounds, etc. Then there was years ago when it was the white European man who was the, the scientist and who was the science advisor. And even that image, I noticed recently at school of my kids that when they picture a scientist, they picture an Albert Einstein-like figure. His hair needs to be strange. He needs to be white and male, <laughs> uh, which always annoys me. But th that is still, that bias is still in there. And I think, yeah, I think that's slowly changing in younger generations. Uh, but it does, it's not for free, I would say. I think we still have to make an effort also to think about what diversity we want in specific groups. And depending on the question, the diversity want, you want in an advice mechanism and an advice group might be slightly different, but that at least you think about it. Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? So you might want different kinds of diversity depending on the question that you're answering. Well, yeah. Well, let me think. We have more industrial type policies where industry is a big stakeholder or where it's a, more about uh, uh, politics or really policy for politics or or culture or so I think there it yeah it depends a little bit I'm, I'm just thinking back on the advice we've given like it's healthy aging for example there you might have different stakeholders then if you go food research it, it, it of course depends where you are in Europe what access to food you might or might not happen due political climates etc so you might involve different parties yeah okay gotcha and just to come back to the main theme we were talking about a minute ago if I understood you right, uh, it can be true that including young academies in science advice also improves other dimensions of diversity. I mean, other than age diversity. But that's not, as it were, automatic, like I suggested. It's more a consequence of the fact that young academies happen to themselves be more thoughtful about including those dimensions of diversity anyway. So their pool of experts is, for that reason, more diverse than the other pools we might fish in for science advisors. Yeah. Yeah, and we do more outreach and we do all those kind of things. But I, I find it always that sometimes we have the young people have to represent all the tick boxes in one because then it's done. So that's, that's yeah, you see that sometimes, eh? Huh. So you mean you have like nine experts who are older white men and then you have number 10 is who's a young person who better also be from 
a minority religion, ethnic background, sexuality, gender. Yeah, that's what I mean. That it's a female from an ethnic minority from an EU 13 country from that, that you have. Yeah, that shouldn't be represented in one. All right. So that's the principle. I want to start talking more about the practicalities now. Because you set up this organization to try to bring more diversity to science advice at a European level. And my first question is, why did you have to do that? Like, I mean, why is it a challenging enough task to make it worth creating something like YASA specifically to tackle it? And you can talk about the particular context within the EU science advice mechanism within SAPEA, but you can please also talk more broadly if you have thoughts on the situation within scientific advice structures and processes in general. Yeah, so I think within the SAPEA structure, the way, because the way it was set up with the academy networks that were mostly senior academy networks and senior in all the different ways. Uh, so they're really bringing YASAS in as a separate entity, having the focus there just makes everyone more aware that that is a dimension we have to think about. Ideally, of course, you don't want to need that anymore and you want academies to become fully diverse and that you shouldn't have a separate entity like we shouldn't have a separate uh, organization for gender, for example. Uh, so that that's the future. Now, having this as a separate partner, um, I think within the SAPEA structure, we are now well accepted. It took a little bit of time, but I think all the partners are now happy we're there. They see the advantages and and... We also see that the young academies and the young people are also more critical and asking questions about why the system and the procedures are the way they are. So we rethink the transparency and the open sea and all of these kind of things. What we now see is that we might get our excellent people uh, selected for working groups, for committees, for uh, workshops, etc. But then those people don't want to say yes to, the, to taking up this task or are not allowed to take up the task. And that is because they are in a career track system. So they're often in, in precarious positions. They don't have a permanent position yet. They have to meet certain criteria before they can progress to the next step. So from example, assistant to associate to full professor. And so within their career track assessments, this is not part of their assessment criteria. So giving advice is, well, a lot of the, the career tracks are based on publications, bringing in money and teaching. And teaching is, well, I think it's a ground, it's one of the major aspects of working at a university, but research is often the most important criterion, bringing in money and, and producing papers. And so you see that, especially in countries where this is still very much the case, that early and mid-career researchers don't dare to waste their time and it's not wasting time of course but they dare, don't dare to put their time into a science advice mechanism because if you take up the role it's a lot of work um, because in that time they can also produce maybe two papers or get an extra grant in uh, and that then counts to their career and not the science advice and of course that is what we need to change yes okay so now we open the can of worms of research assessment <laughs> I would argue personally that giving advice to the European Committee, which changes a policy or legislation, is more impact than this extra paper in Jax or Ankelante. But that's not everyone's opinion. Yeah. And importantly, it's not the opinion of everyone who assesses the career performance of early and mid-career academics. Yeah. 
So the idea here presumably is that if you're a more established senior academic, you don't have the same constraints. You've already, as it were, made it in your career. So you have the freedom then to dedicate time to science advice work if you want. Yeah, you have your autonomy and you can think, well, this is now important and you don't need the extra paper. uh, So you can spend time on this. Yeah, so that is something where especially the role of YASAS, as I see it now in SAPEA, is to actually convince not just only the earlier mid-career researchers to spend their time, but also the ones assessing their career, that this is really just another form of impact. And and I read a paper the other day where someone evaluated the different forms of impact, and there are over 2,000 forms of impact. And a journal, a publication is just one of them. And I would argue that that science policy advice is often much more impactful. So, Yeah, and I think the reasons for this are interesting to reflect on. And I suspect you've reflected on them plenty. So <laughs> I want to see what you think. One possible reason is that this is just like a, a culture change that needs to happen. There's a traditional way of doing things that institutions who employ researchers have always just seen research excellence as being represented by publications in high-impact journals. That's the gold standard. And so then you'd argue they just need to change their thinking. Another possibility, though, is that they're kind of stuck with that because that's what brings them the money they need to function. And it's all very well saying our academics can go off and do policy advice and we can see the impact on society and pat ourselves on the back about it. But then we're stuffed because we don't get the big grants we need to pay the salaries of those researchers who are doing that pro bono, usually science advice for the benefit of wider society or to attract the best professors or the best students or buy the lab equipment or whatever. Yeah, so I think actually what you say is a combination of the two. And the the second one you say bringing in money, of course, to do research for paying salaries. That really depends on where you work, which country, which institution, which university. Uh, I mean, a lot of the European universities have the basic salary, at least for the researchers there. And that mostly comes from teaching, actually. Uh, but that's, of course, uh, is true. But I think, yeah, we're still in this this academic culture where, yeah, it's the old-fashioned culture where an academic did research and didn't really care about the rest. So, yeah, I think the academic culture is is a very important thing because, of course, that is, yeah, our history. And that is what an academic used to only have to care about. Uh, But I think we see more and more that science is important also in society. Yeah, I think that has just changed also with all the the challenges we face as a society, which we maybe didn't face years ago. And and so we have to respond and react. And we have, I think we have a responsibility there. So this whole system changes. And on top of that, so we, we want to engage with society. We want to have different types of impact, but also... Uh, this this publishing, this publish or Paris culture, everyone needs to publish more and more and journals. So take their role there. Um, and, and the way we go to open science, which is again, I think also partly induced by the fact that we have these societal challenges so that we want all data available for all to make the right decisions. And then the hierarchy in academia we now see more and more is causing problems, especially for diversity and inclusion, to bring other people in. They're then not socially safe. So it's all interlinked, I think. Okay. There's lots there. Um, Could you say a little bit about that last point? So about the hierarchy and the social safety elements? Yeah. So initially, universities were, well, let's let's paraphrase. It's not completely due, but let's paraphrase uh, the white men were academia. Uh, 
But like we said before, to, to increase impact of research and output, you also want to diversify your uh, culture. So that is slowly happening uh, in everywhere. And in some countries, this is more than others. Uh, and you see, when you bring different type of people together, then the hierarchy changes and, and the culture changes and people have to behave differently to each other. And we see that a lot of places, this is really hard. I mean, if you select someone to work with you, research has shown that you select someone who looks like you. But that might not be the best person to hire in terms of diversity and output, etc. So that is only, people have only been aware of that for the, well, recently, I, I don't know what recent is, tens of years. And I guess people could have known before, but didn't really have to think about that. But it, it, this is with women and bringing ethnic minorities in, etc. So they don't look like you. They are different. And you bring them in a system and the culture is different and they might not fit. So you might bring them in. A lot of people bring women, minorities in, but then don't think about how they are embedded and included in the system. And so they feel left out and they're sometimes even treated as less or unsafe. So this is now emerging. And I, I think it's not more than it used to be. I think we talk about it finally. I think it, it tens, 20 years ago, women and others just quietly left because they didn't feel at home. They didn't feel accepted. Now we talk about it because we don't, now don't really accept that anymore. We want to be included. And I think this this whole process is happening. So this this social safety, open science, uh, different forms of impact, uh, and and with that it has been given the name recognition rewarding. So we have so many different roles, and some are good in one role more than in other roles, and not everyone can be a leader. Uh, some are better in teaching, others are better in research. And the fact that we want to appreciate all these people and we want them in our teams to do the best we can as a university, that brings everything to light. And so to me, it's also all related. But it's it's difficult if you work on them all together because then people might get a little bit fed of it and you might forget about the intrinsicacies of the individual problems. So it's complex, but we have to work on all of this. Um, do you think this is something which... Are, are you optimistic that this will happen over time anyway? You said that when you increase diversity, which is now happening, you also change other things within an organisation. Um, and I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, when people who grew up in a less diverse culture and perhaps feel resistant or out of place move on and retire or die, <laughs> are these places being taken by people who are now more on board? I don't say this as an argument against taking steps now, because obviously right now there are real people who are affected by the status quo. It's more a question about kind of hypothetical long-term outlook. Could we expect to see improvement anyway, even if we just waited? Um, I have to say that lately I'm a little bit less hopeful than I was before. <laughs> uh, in a way, yes, I think a lot of the old-fashioned views slowly disappear, but we also see that people are afraid that things are changing. And, and just maybe as an example, in the Netherlands, we monitor uh, women in academia and we, we have an organization who was founded uh, over 20 years ago to get 20% in 2020 and then working towards equal representation. And we thought every generation it's improves and it gets better. Now the targets are gone 
and everyone thinks we've we've established it and and we're now at 25 percent eh? we're not at this equal representation by far but people think we've worked on this so long now people get tired of it we they say we've we've done this now and then immediately what we see is that all the numbers go down again so it's 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 hard we also see examples where you take sometimes a problem out of a group or a system or a university, but the culture doesn't change. So you actually have to work on the culture while we age people out of the system uh, because the system is so pertinent, so embedded in in a lot of countries, universities. Um, yeah, I don't know. <sighs> That's depressing because, I mean, the, 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 idea, the argument that's made for like setting these binding targets is that that way we make the culture change so that eventually we take our hands off the steering wheel a bit and the culture will have changed and it will run itself in a more desirable way. And that's the response that's usually, I mean, that's the response that I've given to people who see the unfairness in measures like, you know, gender quota systems and so on. The response is, okay, we know it's not ideal, but we need this measure now so that we can change a long-term discriminatory culture that's otherwise self-perpetuating, right? It's the idea of short-term, uh, a short-term measure to fix a long-term problem. And it's kind of depressing in a way to hear that that might not be working. Well, I, but I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it does work, but I th- there's always this 30%, this magic 30% is always mentioned. And then when you have 30% women or 30% of a specific minority, then things will work themselves out. But this 30%, no one, we looked into that recently. We don't really know where this comes from because there's also a lot of literature which has much higher or that there's not a clear number. It's not just the number, it's the cultural change as well. And if you bring in 30% women, but you don't change things around it, so that's not enough. Uh, I think these these measures will uh, help. They they do help because we do see we talk about it now and it is more open. But it's it's very slow and you have to be very careful as soon as you let go uh, that it might go back again. So I think only when we do things in a concerted effort and look at numbers as well as cultural changes and and systems where people are properly embedded. And include it, and I think that's the major change which needs to be happening. Uh, then things go by itself, but not without. And just to loop back to the science for policy conversation, so that, so the chain of reasoning is clear. We're talking now in general about diversity in academia, and well, diversity and um, equity. You know, people feeling like they fit in and have an equal stake, and so on. But the argument here is that only by changing that culture in academia, you will be able to improve the system that currently puts barriers like a publication-focused career progression system in front of people who might otherwise want to get involved in society-focused activities, like science advice. So change the culture in academia to free up this kind of science advice capacity. Is that the argument you're making? Yeah, yeah, because that is, and that is what we just see as well. eh? So when we do have someone selected, that person then says no or has to say no. Uh, and that is, of course, then all the efforts on one side is not enough because we need to change it on the floor. Yeah. And you mentioned also that different countries are at different stages in this process. I mean, being optimistic is a, like a progressive process we're moving through, right? 
But if that's the case, then do you see that reflected in the take-up of science advice roles? Do you find that academics from countries or institutions that have a more diverse culture are more likely to be able to get involved in policy advice than those from less diverse Yeah, definitely. We see that in the young academies, like, for example, the Young Academy of Europe, we actively try to recruit members from, for example, the EU 13 or EU 15 countries, it's now called, I think. Uh, We see that the majority of our members comes from Germany, the Netherlands, UK. Um, But we also see it in Coara. So this is, you said Coara or (laughs) Coara, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's the Coalition for Advancement of Research Assessment. Um, And that is a a coalition of institutes and organizations which have signed up that they agree that research assessment and thereby also research career assessment will have to be reformed. Uh, th- that is the coalition that just that we agree that it has to change. But then now we go into working groups and trying to share best practices and see what countries want and need and how they want to participate. We see there's a huge distribution on, on what countries want to do and can do also because of the politics in the country, etc. And we see in different countries higher pay gaps between, well, for example, between male, female. Um, there are so many differences, even within Europe. And this, of course, has to happen worldwide because otherwise European scientists, that's a fear of a lot of scientists that they're not competitive worldwide anymore. But we see even in Europe these large differences uh, at all levels again. And for example, like in so the Scandinavian countries and also the Netherlands, there's a lot of progression already in this whole recognition and rewarding. We have changed our career paths. You can you can choose different tracks where you focus on research or teaching or impact. And that is other forms of, so like science policy. Uh, but other countries where the minister just wants to see impact factors, etc. So it's very different. So getting to a uniformed European is one and then worldwide is two. Um, yeah. So it's very complex. Yeah. Yeah. You say it needs to be worldwide because there's this fear that otherwise Europeans will be seen as uncompetitive. So this competitiveness thing is an argument often deployed against making these kinds of changes. The, the reason the system is the way it is and it needs to stay that way is because if we improve it at some cost, then we will fall behind our competitors who don't spend that cost, who don't make those improvements. Um, so we're all stuck at the lowest common denominator. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, no. The argument is made that if 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 a researcher, well, for example, a Dutch researcher is not forced to have so many, well, less papers, less high impact papers, because we don't use this uh, journal impact factor anymore, etc. But if he or she then competes with someone, let's say from the US, where this is still focusing on numbers of papers and impact factors, then, and that's interesting, the scientists themselves feel very sure in early mid-career researchers in, while this transition is happening, they feel if they would go up for the same job that there might be valued less, yeah, less of a scientist or a, a less excellent scientist, which might not even be true. But of course, the early and mid-career researchers who are there now, they are in this transition phase. 
And depending on where they want to go and what job they want, they might need one or the other because not everyone embraces this recognition rewarding just yet. Yeah, right. I get it. And of course, because academia as a career is so hyper mobile, you have to have a CV that hires will appreciate wherever in the world you want to end up. Yeah. And we see that even within Europe, that in some countries, they only look at papers and impact factors, while other countries get rid of that altogether or want to get rid of that altogether. And so how do you match that? And how do you provide equal opportunities in our case for all early and mid-career researchers who are especially now in this transition phase? So I think there, Coara is really good because it has, I think last week, uh, 600 signatories uh, all over Europe and also some worldwide. So I've seen some signatories from Argentina, Brazil, etc. So a lot of people are thinking about this and are committed to changing something. How far and how to do that, that's a whole different uh, matter. And that's why all these working groups are installed now, which look at national aspects, which look at for example, uh, what is an excellent, what is excellent research? What is impact? What is a co- career track? What is a research career? So all these working groups are active now. Yeah, and of course, one advantage of counting high impact journal publications is that you can count it, right? That you can count the number of journals and publications, the number of citations those journals have, and you can really quantify it in a, in a useful way. Whereas a lot of the society interaction, like policy advice, is much harder to quantify and therefore to use fairly as a basis for career progression. No, that's true. And we, we even see in our career tracks now this quantification is taken away to become more flexible and to appreciate everyone's talents that's the but the younger people get very insecure because they don't know what they work towards again and of course the risk is that this induces a whole new different set of biases and we're still going in the assessment with a bias so we really have to think about these committees which assess the the, the candidates on their career progression as well that they learn how to assess this and and how to do that in the least biased way. But this is, again, complex, yeah. And we see that a lot of early and mid-career researchers get very insecure about this. They they prefer to know that they have to write 15 papers and get half a million in because then at least they know when they get that, they get there and they will get the... Yeah, understood. It's messy and it's complicated. And as far as I know, the European Union, as I understand it, has been involved in supporting this. Yeah, and, and but also the Coara was fully supported by the European Commission. So that was initiated actually from the European University Association with the European Commission. Uh, and they, ha- I, I don't know why they now do the both tracks, but at least they really show their commitment that the European Commission finds this very important as well and that they vouch for it. So from that aspect, I find it good. I find the fact that they do different things with different people and different stakeholders, a little bit confusing uh, for everyone involved because where do we sign up and where do we join and who do who's doing what? Uh, but I think the COARA is very practical with all the institutes involved, sharing best practices, sharing their experiences, which I think is needed on, on, a, 
on the working floor, let's say, because changing a policy, then how to interpret the policy, etc. That's one, of course. So I, th I think they're both useful, but I also see now that it creates some tension and also some discussion. What are we doing now and who's doing what? But um, yeah. Yeah. And you can see why policymakers ought to be behind this. Because in a way, they're some of the most important beneficiaries, right? If you manage to create a system which frees up scientists to give more science advice, to contribute more to society, policy is better off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see, well, we've seen clear examples with with COVID and, and the whole geopolitical climate, etc., that we need access to data because otherwise you get a lot of discussion and tension and polarization. And if if we can make science still credible also to the normal public because that's so important that this is accessible and that scientists are part of this process. Yeah, and that's a dimension of this we haven't really talked about yet. Um, about a year ago, I, I was involved in some discussions about research that was done during and shortly after the COVID pandemic uh, in the UK, I think, where the question was, how come scientific advice and scientific uh, evidence was so much less well taken up and had so much less of an impact on some communities compared to others. And one of the most significant answers to that question, according to the research, was, well, because it had less impact in communities where the scientists and the science advisors didn't look like them. So you'd hope that by improving diversity in those who can give science advice, diversity along many different dimensions, you would also improve kind of the penetration and the trust in science across society. Yeah. So that's like an independent argument for diversity in science advice. No, definitely. And also the way in which we communicate, because as a scientist, we give all the error bars and the bits and the ifs and where we are and what <laughs> we cannot say. But people in crisis, what answers? What do we do? Yes or no? And of course, we want to be careful not to say yes and no when we're not sure. But how to communicate that is also tricky. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And, and the whole polarization of society and things happening on social media where scientists are being threatened when they do speak out and when they do try to help, that of course doesn't help for people to stand up and say, okay, well, I'll go in this talk show, I'll, I'll, I'll be the face of that be because of the backlash which happens at social media at the moment as well. So it's tricky. Yeah, and I recall other guests on this podcast in the past making the point, that, well, two points really. One is that, scientists who are members of minority groups, whether that's age or ethnicity or whatever, tend to get more of that kind of abusive backlash. Surprise, surprise. But also the second point that if you're older and more established in your career and so on, you may be a bit better equipped to handle that. I mean, in terms of personal resilience, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. But that we see the same in politics, of course, as well. So uh, it's it's very hard. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so important, but yeah. Okay, well, look, we're, we're, we're getting to the point of just shooting the breeze here, which is very enjoyable, but perhaps a sign we should be either wrapping up the conversation or at least turning off the mics when we continue. But I would like to finish the episode on a positive note if I can. I think there have been a few occasions recently when I've been a bit gloomy by the end of a conversation and I, I wouldn't want that to happen again. So I want to ask you what's in the future for Yasas and uh, the role of young people in science advice in Europe in general? Yeah, so I think that is already fairly effective. We see that in the working groups and in the dynamics in SAPEA, that this is taken very seriously and that we, we watch for quality, diversity, all these transparency, all these different aspects. Of course, what I alluded to before, ideally you would want to see 
the other academy networks to be more inclusive and diverse, that you don't need to separate early and mid-career researchers out to make this, this uh, to, to increase the diversity. So ideally, yeah, that, that is basically the message that you want academies to be diversive and inclusive and more aware of all these aspects. And we do see a little bit of that because we, we do speak to the other partner academies, of course, and they do ask for advice and feedback on how to do that within their own academies and how to increase this diversity. So I think that is a, that is an, a very positive outcome on top of the fact that we are part of the SAPEA, that also the academies themselves and the academy networks think on how to diversify and how to be more inclusive. Good. So hope for the future then. Yeah. And that, of course, then reflects also the change in the academic culture and inclusivity there. So it, it works then at all levels. Huh? So, Monique, this has been a great conversation for me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your insights and your time. Uh, Professor Monique Trump, thank you. Thank you. It was very nice. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisabetta Shushenko.